Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today, what we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to pause from what the, the traditional rhythm with Palm Sunday. Typically, Palm Sunday, uh, you talk about what we call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's when he came to, into Jerusalem riding a donkey, and there was palm branches and people shouting Hosanna. And sometimes, you know, churches, if they're really creative, they get a live donkey. And um, we've, we've, we've done that. We've, we've, we've covered all the bases at some point. Today we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to switch up the order because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be preparing ourselves for the Stations of the Cross this week. Uh, We're going to be listening to the seven things that Jesus spoke from the cross on Good Friday. And so today's, um, in addition to being the first day of our Easter celebration, it's also the last day. It's the final day. It's it's actually like the, 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 the pinnacle of the series we've been in. We've been in this series called When God Spoke. So it's been like a five-part series, When God Spoke. And you remember the, the, the kind of there's an anchoring passage that we've used throughout this passage or the series? Does anybody remember what it is? Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. First few verses of Hebrews go like this. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. In the past, this is referring to like everything in the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he'd made purification for sins, this is the the Easter story. When he'd made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Which brings us to our title slide today. Today's final part in this series is called When God Spoke from the Cross. And so what we've been looking at is that that God spoke many things, and there's many things that we know about God uh, in Scripture ways that God has revealed himself throughout human history, things that we can witness about God just by observing creation thoughtfully. There's a lot of things we can know about our God, about our creator. But there's some things we only know because he spoke them through his son. And it's a better revelation. It's a more complete revelation because he's the exact image of of God's very being. And so we've been looking at that and saying, what is it that we find out about God that we wouldn't have known apart from the incarnation, apart from Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking at the, really the, the pinnacle of all that is seven things that Jesus spoke from the cross. And so uh, this is our series today. We're going to be looking at each of the seven phrases. These are harmonized from the four gospels. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the four gospels tell the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, but they each include something uh, that, that maybe the others didn't. And, and so if we take what we find Jesus speaking from the cross from all four of those, 
we, we find seven different phrases that Jesus spoke while on the cross. And so we're going to look at those today with the question of what does this reveal to us about our God that we would not have otherwise known? And let me just close with this as, I, as we prepare for the first one. The purpose of this today, it's not just spiritual insight or theological knowledge. In fact, the writer of Hebrews who gave us this anchoring passage that's the foundation for our series, as he continues writing what's kind of a, it's kind of a written sermon that he's giving, uh, in chapter 12, he goes on to say this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. He's talking about Christians walking this side of eternity, walking out your life. He says, let us throw aside everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. That's our important word for today. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Throughout this week, beginning today, we're going to be making space to do that, to consider Jesus. What he experienced on the cross, what he spoke from the cross, what he accomplished on the cross, and, and what he shows us about God that we wouldn't have otherwise known on the cross. And the purpose of this is to strengthen us for our own lives, our own walk. We live in a time that it, it's, it's challenging. I, I, I have to believe that every person here is stretched in some way to, to live the Christian life. And yet what we're told is that if we reflect on Jesus, it will empower us and strengthen us and help us from going, growing weary. It will give us hope and endurance to walk this road. So today we're going to be hearing from seven presenters. We're going to, seven of us are going to be presenting uh, each one word that Jesus spoke. We're going to begin with uh, Rihanna Freeman. So if you would welcome Rihanna Freeman. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Luke 23, 32 through 34. There is significance to Jesus's first set of last words being a prayer for forgiveness. I suspect that it caught most of those who were present off guard. The pain that was endured through crucifixion was so intense that the Romans had to create a whole new word for it. That word is what we find at the root of excruciating. The long and physical ordeal of crucifixion was at its core excruciating. Imagine the agony of those nails, especially as you had to push all your weight against them as you struggled for each gulp of air. 
He was tortured and humiliated, yet he had done nothing wrong. He was innocent, yet was grouped with criminals to die as one of them. In the midst of these circumstances, we might expect to hear a different response. We might expect to hear curses or anger or maybe a defense of himself, but that's not his response at all. In Jesus' response, we see a revelation of the heart of God. Instead of pouring condemnation on those who are harming him, we see a remarkable cry of mercy. Who do you think that Jesus was thinking of as he uttered this cry? Who was he referring to when he asked for forgiveness for them? In his journey to his death, there were multiple people who that could have applied to. The most obvious in this moment were the soldiers who were directly involved in his torture and execution. Um, crucifixion was not out of the ordinary for them, and their callousness to the whole ordeal with them even casting lots for their clothes was just, just kind of another typical day. And this cry for mercy could have been directed at the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. They were the ones who instigated all of this and are actually leading um, those watching um, in mockery of the whole thing. And perhaps the meaning was for the crowd actually engaging in the mockery and laughing at him in his darkest and most painful moment. Maybe the forgiveness was intended for Pilate, who condemned him to die a criminal's death, even though he knew that he had done nothing wrong. It's also possible that he was thinking of the disciples who scattered and left him to face these final hours all on his own. Or maybe he had eyes to see something broader. Perhaps he was looking at society as a whole as he uttered these words, thinking of the ways that humans create injustice in their communities, the ways that, that we create harm for the most vulnerable. Maybe that Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing cry is something that transcends this moment and is a prayer for us even today. It is telling that Jesus would choose to use some of the very last words he had left for forgiveness. It reveals his heart and desire for mercy and not judgment. It speaks to the reality that through him we are released from the ways that we have missed the mark and are reconciled to God and to one another. Jesus' prayer for forgiveness is something that we're invited into receiving and extending to others. It's the starting place that's meant to lead us forward. This final statement reveals that we can rest in assurance that Jesus' forgiveness has the final say. His revealed character never changes. We are forgiven now and always. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, 
Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We just heard about forgiveness. From the cross, Jesus is showing us who he is and what he does. He is showing us that proclamation is followed by demonstration. After all, since the garden, forgiveness is the foundation of all things Jesus. Truly, I tell you. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. God's word is truth. Jesus is saying, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, paradise is where we started. It was the place of intimate relationship with God. Ever since the fall of man, we've been trying to find our way back to intimate relationship with God. One of the thieves hanging next to Jesus found his way back, all the way back to paradise. But this man has done nothing wrong. How does he know? Maybe he had been one in the crowd of 5,000. Maybe he had been in the crowd of 4,000. Maybe he had been in another place where he heard Jesus' words. Somehow he recognized who this was hanging next to him. But from the cross of a thief, you can look into hopelessness or you can look into faith. You can look into loneliness or you can look into friendship. You can look into history or you can look into life everlasting. You can look into pain or you can look into triumph. You can look into an empty future or you can look into a mirror and see what Jesus sees. Because when it comes down to it, the only thing that matters is which side of the cross you find yourself on. On one hand is a scoffer, the other a believer. One lifts his hands in self-defense, the other lifts his hands in surrender. One says, I don't deserve to die. The other says, I don't deserve to live. One speaks words of wrath, the other words of remorse. One spends eternity in darkness, the other spends eternity in paradise. Because when it comes down to it, the only thing that matters is which side of the cross you find yourself on. From the cross, Jesus expresses his authority. Today you will be with me. Scripture tells us, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And from the cross, Jesus expresses his compassion. This is a decision point. This is a turning point. Jesus proclaims forgiveness, and then Jesus demonstrates his love. In Luke 4, 18, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And now Jesus speaks a healing word from the cross. You will be with me in paradise. Do you feel the door has closed for you? Maybe it's time you pick up that mirror and take a good, long look. Don't be surprised when the image looking back is someone that Jesus loves dearly. After all, it's the man on the middle cross that said you could come.
John 19, 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. If your name was Mary, you were there at the cross that day. We're talking about one Mary, though, Mary of Nazareth, Jesus' mother, who birthed and raised her precious son. He was on the cross, and she was watching his life come to an agonizing end. Stop right there and imagine what she must be feeling. Most scholars agree that by this time, Mary was likely a widow. She did have other children, but Jesus was her firstborn the one who was meant to provide for her in her old age. But from the beginning, Mary knew that Jesus didn't belong to her as her other children did. The angel who announced Jesus' birth made sure she knew without a doubt that she was carrying the Messiah, the promised savior of the Jewish nation of the world. Bearing the son of God came with a heavy, heavy weight. Aside from bearing the ridicule and shame of becoming pregnant before her marriage to Joseph, she would bear even greater pain still. Luke 2, 33 through 35, tells us the story of tiny baby Jesus, just a few weeks old, being presented in the temple courts. Simeon went on to bless them, and he's speaking by the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Simeon said to Mary, This child marks both the failure and the recovery of many in Israel, a figure misunderstood, contradicted, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's not the words you'd expect at a baby dedication, right? (laughs) God gave his only son. Mary also gave her son. Jesus' body after his death in a few hours would be pierced by a spear. But first, it was Mary who was pierced to the depth of her soul. A quick show of hands, who here has watched a family member suffer, a loved one suffer emotionally or physically? Anyone? That's most of us, right? I'm sorry, I see that. You're a special group that knows that watching a loved one suffer their pain is almost felt as your own. Jesus himself in agony looked down from his cross, seeing her anguish and her tangible tangible need, he felt deep compassion for her pain. John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother standing there and the disciple whom he loved, that was John standing nearby, if you pause to imagine this scene, maybe, maybe Mary is so distraught and weak that John was literally clinging to her to keep her from fainting. And they must have been really close to the cross, standing close enough to hear Jesus' words whispered from the cross, as Rihanna said, every breath costing him, dear woman, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother. I don't know about you, but when I'm in physical pain, even when I'm just having a bad day, I close off, I turn inwards. My thoughts are toward myself, but not Jesus, the one who came to serve, not to be served. He cared for his mom. He provided from his own pain. 
John 19, 27 says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, church history tells us that John was the only disciple not martyred early on. He died in his old age in exile instead. Perhaps it was because he had had another mission to see Mary to the end of her life. I imagine the loving Heavenly Father honoring Jesus' dying wish to provide for his earthly mother, saying, yes, of course, son, I'll take care of her. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This fourth phrase that Jesus spoke from the cross includes some timestamps. First, Mark tells us that it was the sixth hour of the day. That means it was high noon. Uh, Time was measured uh, from sunrise, approximately 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would be high noon. So the darkness that falls across the land, this is a supernatural um, darkness that was uh, was inexplicable. In fact, theologians remind us that uh, Passover, this this all happened during Passover. Passover happened during the full moon. And so the moon wasn't in in place for this to have been, for example, an eclipse. What we have here is an inexplicable cosmic darkness while Jesus hangs on the cross struggling for every breath. And it begs the question, what does this strange darkness mean? Well, supernatural darkness like this occurs multiple times in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, In fact, this supernatural darkness is kind of like a a hot link that touches back to previous times where there was a, a supernatural darkness over creation and what that, uh, the implications of that darkness and what it meant. So, for example, in Genesis 1, we find that all of creation begins under deep darkness, darkness that covered the face of the deep. And out of this darkness, as the Spirit brooded over creation, came a voice that spoke and called forth creation. Now we have another supernatural darkness, and the cosmos, in a sense, holding its breath for three hours awaiting the voice that will call forth a new creation, a restored creation. There's a second hyperlink to the Hebrew scriptures we find in Exodus when God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt came through the 10 plagues. The last plague was, was what? It was the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. And it was immediately after the death of the firstborn that deliverance then came out of slavery. But... Just before the death of the firstborn, there was a ninth plague. Do you remember what that was? Darkness. Supernatural darkness. It was over over the land of Egypt for three days, and it was a strange darkness because it was selective. It was only over the people of Egypt, and over the, the people of Israel, there was normal daytime. But for three days, there was this supernatural darkness immediately before the death of the firstborn son that then led to freedom from slavery. This time we have three hours of darkness before the death of God's firstborn, through which God would bring deliverance 
from a different kind of slavery. Mark tells us that then comes the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and Jesus speaks again. At this point, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for six hours. The, the crucifixion began at 9 a.m., and at this point, it's 3 p.m. And as Rihanna alluded to, crucifixion is a long and torturous death. Those who were crucified typically died of asphyxiation or suffocation long before blood loss. In fact, many people, uh, some victims of crucifixion were known to, to uh, succumb to their, their, uh, their death after more than a day of suffering. So here's Jesus struggling for every breath without the strength or the breath to, to speak out complete sentences, let alone paragraphs. And yet he managed to speak out these few words. Eloi, Eloi. This time he speaks them in Aramaic. Matthew and Mark are the ones that give us this record. And they both make a point to say he spoke this exactly like this. He spoke it in Aramaic. And then they provide the translation. There's a reason why they're so uh, deliberate to say this is exactly what he said. Because this short phrase that he utters has a deeper meaning than what it appears on the surface. Spoken in Aramaic, this is the opening line of Psalm 22. Though Jesus and his first hearers, they wouldn't have thought of this as Psalm 22. The, the numeric grid that we have for the Psalms so that we can, for example, say, turn to Psalms 119 or turn to Psalms 139. That was inserted much later. That was given kind of an overlap over Scripture so that people could, could find it, kind of like an address system. But in their day, it was an oral culture. And they didn't, have, they didn't have a numeric grid. Instead, they had the Psalms memorized, and each one was known by the opening line. And so, as Jesus, this was like, kind of like an oral shorthand. The Psalm that we know is Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Righteous Sufferer, begins with the psalmist crying out to God in despair. Begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist is crying out to God in despair of his circumstances that are threatening to swallow him up. But if you read the whole psalm, the whole psalm that in that moment, Jesus, he didn't have the strength or the breath to quote the whole thing. But by quoting the first line, he draws those who are attentive to that psalm. And it does not end where it begins. In fact, for Jesus to call out this psalm tells those who are attentive a few important things. First of all, the fact that he speaks the Hebrew scripture at this moment tells us that he has these truths deeply rooted in his soul. This is the, one of the most agonizing deaths known to mankind. This, this crucifixion, this way of, of torturing someone to death that the Romans had, had come up with. This is torturous. It's, it's, uh, Jesus is enduring physical suffering, spiritual suffering, emotional suffering. Like, this is the most brutal way to die. And in this moment, when, when his life is threatened and when he's being suffocated by crucifixion, do you know where he goes? He goes to Scripture. He goes to the things that are, that are planted so deeply within him. This is the well that he drinks from. Scripture that is truth about God that has become an anchor to his soul. When the despair of what he's experiencing threatens to swallow him, he draws from the well of Scripture. And in Psalm 22, what he finds is hope that sustains him and tells those that are paying attention a different story than what it looks like on the surface. Because on the surface, what it looks like is this poor fool was delusional. He was delusional about who he was. He was delusional about what God would do for him. On the surface, his faith in God looks like a disappointment, like a sham. 
but if you keep reading Psalm 22, the big picture of Psalm 22 is the psalmist crying out in despair. It begins with him crying out in despair for the circumstances that are threatening to swallow up him and devour his life. And in that place, the psalmist feels abandoned and calls out and says, God, where are you? The God he has known and worshipped, where are you? But he goes on to remind himself of God's faithfulness to previous generations. He recalls the stories. He recounts in his mind the stories of how God has always been faithful to his people. The stories of those who have also faced overwhelming circumstances and oppressive enemies. And he remembers how God always came through for them. That's the context of Psalm 22. He says things like, the psalmist says things like, they trusted and they were not put to shame. They cried out to you and they were rescued. And so the author of Psalm 22, it's David. And at the end of it, he prays and he entrusts himself to God. He chooses to believe that he too will be rescued from the circumstances that feel so defeating to him. He cries out about his overwhelming circumstances, about his oppressive enemies. And then he quiets his soul with the confidence that he too will be delivered. And that through this, God will bring salvation to those who fear him, to all the nations of the earth. In fact, the psalm ends. We're going to be uh, referencing Psalm 22 throughout the Stations of the Cross this week. It's going to be kind of the anchor passage that carries us from, from station to station. But listen to, the, to some of the final words of Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. This is the same psalmist who just a moment ago was saying, I feel like you've forsaken me. Where are you? I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. This tells us that it was through this very thing that God brought purpose through what Jesus suffered. That this was the, the means through which he brought salvation to all the nations of the earth. And this tells us something important for us. Like the author of Hebrews, when he says, hey, pay attention to what Jesus did. Consider what Jesus experienced so that you find strength for your own journey. Well, how does this provide strength? How does this tell us something better? It's a better word because we, here we find our creator and God experiencing the darkest despair of what it means to be human. Those moments and seasons when we feel alone, abandoned, hopeless, despairing of life itself, suspecting that if there is a God, he has turned away or at least forgotten us. That's the human experience. The implications of this, of Jesus speaking this out on the cross, is that Jesus has identified with the darkest aspect of what it means to be human and live in a fallen world. Let me be clear. There is no feeling that you've had about overwhelming circumstances or oppressive enemies that our God has not also felt. We actually sang, the worship team led us in a song this morning where we sing, there's a God who weeps, there's a God who bleeds. He felt it all. In this moment, and what sustained him as he felt the things that we feel was remembering what God has revealed himself in the past and entrusting his present circumstances to God with the faith that this is not the end. You have not abandoned me. He believes that God will, in fact, bring rescue and has not forgotten him or abandoned him. So when have you felt abandoned, forgotten, oppressed, crushed? 
When has the despair and hopelessness surrounding you threatened to swallow you up? From the cross, we find out that there is a Lord and Savior who sees you, who gets you, and who invites you to follow him and find hope and strength in your time of need. Getting old, I need the glasses. Okay. John chapter 19, verses 28. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This is the same God that we as Christians believe at the beginning created the heavens, created the earth, sat back and declared three words. It is good. This world is supposed to be good. But here you have God himself beaten within an inch of his life, hanging from a cross, and now identifying with total human weakness. Food, shelter, clothing, drink, I thirst. The major religions of the world and all the philosophical systems deal with this issue. That's the problem of evil. Religiously, the Buddha, one of the most famous, he primarily dealt with this problem of evil. If this world's so good, but there's bad things that happen, how do we deal with this? Where'd it come from? Why is it here? He would primarily say it's a problem of your eye, perspective. Hinduism, the oldest of the religions of the book, deals with it by saying it's from, it's from one of the gods and goddesses. They have a bunch of them. But for example, the goddess Kali is the goddess of war, but also the goddess of mercy. This comes from the same god. The good, the bad, it all just comes. Islam deals with it a little different. They look at God slightly different than, than the Jewish people do or Christians. One apologist, a, a person who defends Islam, explained it this way, used the analogy of a human and his dog. He said, hey, I have an apartment and I have a dog and I love my dog. I feed my dog. I care for my dog. But now I have to move to an apartment that doesn't allow dogs. So I kill my dog. Or they deal with it with legislation, laws, Shira law, stuff like that. Judaism is a bit different. Judaism deals with this problem of suffering and evil that Jesus is dealing with, that you guys and I deal with, differently. It's kind of shrouded in mystery. You find it primarily in the book of Job in the Old Testament. And Job is a man who thirsted after God and was filled. He had a great family. He had honor and prestige, known as a good and righteous man. Had land, had cattle, all that stuff. And in an instant, it was all taken away from him. All of it. Homeless. He had nothing. And his buddies come around him and they try to comfort him and they talk about why this happened. 
And then God speaks. And God answers Job numerous times. And he primarily, like over 20 times, starts with these three words. Were you there? Were you there? When I made the heavens, were you there, Job? When I made the earth, were you there, Job? When I made the ocean, were you there? Job wasn't there. In a world that whispers, speaks, and in Job's case, radically shouts something completely opposite, God says, just trust me, Job, and follow me. Now, Christianity in Jesus builds on that Jewish root. That's where it comes from. It's like a tree that comes out of a Jewish root and it grows big. And Jesus is the final word about why is there evil and suffering and death and all this stuff. He's it. God gives us more than he gave Job. And the answer is this. God doesn't always take you out of the bad stuff. But he goes through it with you. That's a good answer. He goes through it with you. And here is the living God on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not separated from God, but he experiences it. He takes on full humanity, the full weakness of the human condition. And then he says, I thirst. Unable to help himself. So anything that we're going through, he goes through it with us. He understands the weak, human, dependent condition. And all that bad stuff that happens around the world, it also happens in here, doesn't it? So he gets it. I leave you with this last point. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was dealing with the sin and evil of this world and especially this country and spoke truth to power, he would get death threats many a day. And he, I guess he was okay with them. I'd be like crumbling and crying in the corner. And he got one one night, his wife was asleep, kids were asleep in their bed. And the person on the phone rang and the person said, if you don't leave here and stop what you're doing, I'm gonna kill you, your wife, your kids, and I'm gonna blow up your house. And that one got to him. And he looked at his wife asleep. He went into his kid's room, they were asleep, and he couldn't go back to sleep. And he went in the kitchen and he poured some coffee and opened up his Bible. And he thirsted. He said, God, I, I think I'm right. And I think the cause that I represent is right. But I am weak, I am faltering, and I am losing my courage. He was about to quit. And at that moment, he heard the voice of Jesus that said, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and I'm gonna be with you to the end of the times. And Martin Luther said, he promised never to leave me, never to me, leave me alone. I'm never alone. John 19, 30. 
When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here we are nearing the last few moments of Jesus' life. We hear those three words, it is finished. And we get the immediate sense of them. As we have put ourselves in this story, the scenes of the last few hours have been brutal and they've been dark. This pain can't go on forever. There must be an end in sight. Like viewing a difficult scene in a movie or of immense suffering, we find ourselves needing this suffering to come to an end. Here, we are in the final words of Jesus' life. And with very little strength left in him, he announces, it is finished. It's helpful to know that these three words in English, it is finished, are one word in Greek. That's the language of the New Testament. And they mean to fulfill the final purpose or to accomplish the ultimate goal. And something worth mentioning, we can find ourselves at a disadvantage as modern day readers of the Bible, so far removed from its original times and its original culture. We come to the Bible and to its story looking through a frame with edges and boundaries. These boundaries are based on our own time, our own culture, our own stories. Jesus himself had a context of time and place. He was a faithful Jewish man in troubled ancient Israel. He himself had a frame of understanding that shaped his identity and his purpose. An article I read by a man named Rich Robinson says, there are probably no other persons in history whose life has raised as many questions as that of Jesus. His life, teaching, and deeds were of such a nature that his first disciples and closest followers were very often baffled by him. But for Jesus himself, the Hebrew scriptures were the key by which he understood his vocation as Israel's Messiah. A clear understanding of this comes at the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus was crucified, his followers were crushed. They had hoped that he would be the Messiah who would destroy Rome and restore the kingdom of Israel. But their idea of the Messiah was not God's idea of the Messiah. And to his disappointed followers, Jesus said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's from Luke 24. For Jesus, the idea that he had to first die as an atonement for our sins and then rise from the dead made perfect sense and was in fact necessary as the fulfillment of what the prophets of the Hebrew Bible had said. This was how he understood himself. And he argued that this was the only way his followers could understand him. Just like creative script writers of some of our favorite movies, they start out in present day, and they do this flashback in time to fill in the backstory. If we wanna really understand the scope of Jesus' words here, it is finished. We have to look back. 
The narrative of all of scripture tells us humanity has been in trouble, they can't fix themselves, and they need a savior. Jesus tries to help his followers understand the Old Testament scripture has been leading to the solution. God the Father put a plan in motion, and Jesus the Son is obediently submitted to the plan. In this way, the Old Testament prophecies lead us to Jesus. Just for a taste of the scope of these prophecies, here's a few of them, the ones we are most familiar with. In this process, I discovered the conservative number is that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies. There's actually even more. <laughs> but I only have about 30 seconds left, so don't worry. So here's some that we're most familiar with. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He would be a descendant of David. He would be preceded by a messenger. The Messiah would perform signs of healing. He would be the righteous sufferer. He would be pierced, lifted up. The Messiah would be the Passover lamb. Um, John the Baptist in the New Testament in the Gospels refers twice to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah will be the descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He would bear our sins and suffer in our place. He would not remain dead. His days will be prolonged and he will be exalted. The Messiah would bring in a new covenant. So I'll finish with this from Jeremiah 31. God says, the days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is a word for us. Receive this word. It is finished. Feels like that should be the last one. But it's not, this is the last one. So after he says it is finished, the last thing Jesus said on the cross, we find in Luke chapter 23. Beginning in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So it's after Jesus says it is finished, and this happens. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. The curtain in the temple was woven in such a way that it was about this thick. There's, there's just no way 
that could be torn in two by earthly measure. So the curtain is torn in two, revealing the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was found, the presence of God, the mercy seat. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So much is put on the last words that people say when they die. What were their last words? Oh, their last words were, this is their last words. The last thing they said, these were their last words, right? In death, we often find some sort of value in the last words of people, the last thing that they said. Now, we know that these last words from Jesus are obviously not his last words because three days later, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, now eternal. He has no last words and will have no last words. Amen? He has no last words. He will have no last words. Think about that for a minute. These life-giving words we're finding today that are feeding us today, they are eternal. Jesus Christ has no last words. He's eternal. He's still speaking today. And we celebrate that next Sunday, right? But all of what we celebrate next Sunday was made possible because of this phrase right here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Everything we're about to celebrate this week and next Sunday, it was all made possible by this phrase right here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even though I could summon the armies of heaven in this moment and blow these idiots away and jump down from here and completely healed and whole, that's my thoughts about what he might be thinking. <laughs> we just heard from, from Chris. In this moment, he is experiencing complete humanity. I thirst. He is probably not experiencing, you know, a whole lot of kindness now. I'm just, I'm just projecting what I would be feeling as a man. I could just hop down from here. We could get this thing done in a couple different ways right now. This hurts. This is excruciating. I can't breathe. I'm thirsty. I could just get down off this cross, just like the people are taunting me to do. They're right in front of me and they're saying, why don't you come down from there and heal yourself? Why don't you come down from there and do what you said? Remember when you said this? Hey, remember when you said that? And they're spitting on him and they're spitting on his cross and they're tearing up his clothes and they're dividing them right in front of his mom. And they're doing all in that moment. Now, Jesus didn't sin. He led a sinless life. But I want to just tell you right now, I'm sure he was dealing with his thought life in that moment. With a thought, he could just like, that guy could just die. I just need to stop hearing him talk for a second. Human. These humans who've spit on him, whipped him, beat him, stripped him, whipped him, nailed him to a post and stabbed him in the side. Don't you think the temptation was still a little bit there to end everything? Instead, what's he do? 
I'm gonna commit my spirit to you, Father. Do what you will, your way and not my way. And it says he calls out in a loud voice. His last words on the cross, he calls out in a loud voice. He yells it out. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a glorious submission right here at the end. A glorious submission to the will of the Father. A final act that screams, your kingdom come, your will be done, and not my own. This week in, in our weekly prayer time, uh, we were just talking a little bit about the river of God. Ezekiel chapter 47 has a vision where um, an angel come and takes the prophet Ezekiel to the river of God, and it says that it's flowing out from the presence of God from right where that curtain was torn. It's flowing out from there, and what happens is it flows out of the threshold, and he steps into the river, and it's, there's banks on the river, and he steps to the bank, and the angel calls him out a little further to his ankles, then to his knee deep, then to his waist deep, then to his chest deep, and then it says he calls him out to a place where no flesh can stand anymore, and it says no man can cross it. He had to pick up his feet and be carried along by the river of God. He submits to the river of God. He submitted to the river, to the current. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Ezekiel doesn't see the rest of the vision, do you know that, until he submits to the river of God. After he lifts up his feet and gets carried along, says, then he takes me to the banks of the river, he shows me the trees, he shows me the people, he shows me the city, he shows me the leaves, he shows me the healing, he shows me the fruit, he shows me the fish, he shows me creation, he shows me all of these things. But he doesn't see the rest of the vision without submission. In this moment, Jesus shows us you can't see the rest of the vision without submission. The curtain was already torn. Yeah, they had access now to God. What was left? What was left? Whatever the Father wanted. There's this glorious submission in this declaration by Jesus that says, whatever you want, Father. James 4, verse 7 says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. James 4, verse 7, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Jesus was saying, Father, I submit myself to you. Jesus sets for us the great example of laying one's life down, but also of submitting to the Father all the way to the end without exception. See, the curtain was torn. The curtain was torn. They had access to God before he does this. What is his final step? If there's anything else, Father, you want, I submit to you. This is our example. He is our example. Submitting our hearts to the Father sounds like this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You say, oh, he was dying. This is just his final expression of giving up the ghost. Sure, I can see that. I can also see, though, that this is the moment where Jesus affirms his prayer from the night before in the garden, where he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's his final affirmation to say, you know what I prayed last night with blood, sweat, and tears? I'm praying it again. Not my will, yours be done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If there's anything else that you want done, I give you my whole self. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's stand together today. As we wrap this up,
We're going to take just a moment and dwell on these seven sayings, but specifically this one here. Because some of us may have been walking with Jesus for many years. For some of us, this might be our first experience in church. That's okay, and we have everything in between. But today, as we consider, as Pastor Trevor said, we want to consider him. As we consider Jesus, as we consider the things that he suffered, as we consider what that means for us, as we consider it, what I want us to think about is, as Jesus said here, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What do we need to submit to him today? Today we might be saying, I, I need to submit my life to him. I, I'm not living for him. Okay. Let's submit our lives to him. There might be a situation we need to submit to him. That it might, it's just not going the way we thought it would go. So let's do that. Let's submit those things to him today, whatever that is. So today, all over this room, will you just put your hands out to the Lord? Here on this Palm Sunday, as we've considered Jesus, as we've heard his last words from the cross, as we consider our lives and our situations, what we're in right now, what we're going through, what's happening in the world around us, what's happening in our lives, our homes, our families, our kids, our marriages, our jobs, our whatever, whatever it is. Can we understand what Jesus understood today that in our darkest moment, the greatest thing we can do is submit to the Father? So right now, Father, we submit to you our thoughts, our families, our, our situation, our jobs, our emotions, our mental health, our physical health, our marriages, our households. Our... I'm going to submit them to you, Father, and I'm going to say, not my will, but yours be done. That prayer is what allows the kingdom of God to be made manifest in the world around us. When we pray, as Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right here on earth as it is in heaven, it's like a door opening to heaven that the kingdom of God can be made manifest in your life and in mine, in your world and in mine. So Jesus, we give you, we submit to you today, our whole lives. Come Holy Spirit. Jesus, we give you our hearts and our lives today. We submit to you all that we are, all that we have. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing Jesus in this place in such a beautiful way today. Just take a moment. We're not in a rush. Whatever is on your mind and your heart, would you just submit it to the Father today?
there's healing happening in this room today. As we submit to the Father, there's healing happening right here in this room. There's even some um, church leaders that are receiving healing and direction in this moment. There's healing happening. Healing in hearts and in minds. Receive healing from the Father today as you submit to him. Father, we submit to you. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We give you our lives today, God. Yes. We give you our lives today. We submit our hearts to you. We submit our thoughts to you glorious submission to your will. I want to do two things. I want to, some of us need to go and that's okay. Go ahead. Some of us need to pick up kids or whatever we need. That's okay. But I want to end this by not ending this, if that's okay. <laughs> we have some words for prayer. And also, I believe that some of us need to just keep connecting with the Father. We had some words for prayer today. These are things that our prayer team prayed about and said, hey, this is what we feel from God today. One was don't worship your own weakness. Next was don't bow to your mountain. These are just things that our, our, our prayer team felt. And then I'm the father of the fatherless. He, they were just feeling like this morning, God speaking that over you. If you want to respond to any of those, I welcome you just to respond right where you sit or come on up to the front and somebody from our prayer ministry will meet you here. And then we're done for today. You, you're dismissed. Go make the invisible God visible. If you want to stay in this moment and just keep meeting with God, we're just going to keep just keep an atmosphere of pressing into God's presence. And if that's you, you just want to press in, you're, just do it right from where you are or come on forward. We're not going to rush out of this time. There's just a sweetness in his presence. God bless you. Have an incredible week. We'll see you back here for the stations uh, of the cross all this week and Friday night for Good Friday uh, communion service as well as next Easter, uh, uh, next Sunday for Easter. God bless you. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.